You're listening to Think, Bank, Thought, a podcast about building thinking classrooms and teaching math. Hello, everyone, again. Uh, Dean and I are doing a fun interview here today with a new friend that we made a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, we traveled up to Saskatoon, which is here in Saskatchewan, to attend the Saskatchewan Math Teachers Conference. Um, and one of our presenters, our keynotes, was Jeff Crawl, and Jeff is with us today. So we're really excited to welcome Jeff to the podcast and have a conversation with us. Jeff, do you mind just telling us a little bit about where you are, what you do, all the different things that you're willing to share with us today? Sure. So first of all, thanks for having me. It's, it's great to great to meet some new friends. I am Jeff Crawl. I live in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I am currently a PhD student as well as a teacher at the University of Wyoming. I'm actually teaching a course this summer, which I'm very excited about, which maybe we'll talk about later. Um, and I spent the first 10 years of my career as a classroom teacher in Texas. And then I moved to Colorado because we kind of wanted to just move to Colorado. And I actually signed up with working for a nonprofit to support math teachers across the country. And so I spent about 10 years doing that. And then in 2020, I decided to go back into go back to school as my daughters were finishing up school and decided to, to go get a, a PhD in, at the University of Wyoming in math education. And so that's what I've been doing the past few years. And you know, while I'm doing that, I'm also teaching some courses here and there. I'm also still like supporting schools and teachers individually and, and just picking up little consulting opportunities here and there as an instructional coach. And then I'm the author of a book called Necessary Conditions, which has been a really fun experience. And I'm sure we'll talk about that throughout the podcast. We definitely will. I'd love to hear, you know, for those that aren't familiar with your book, and I imagine many people who are listening are, but for anyone who hasn't had a chance to pick up a copy or glance through one, can you just give us a little, like, what's it all about? Sure. Um, so it sort of came out of my experiences traveling as when I was working for this nonprofit. And what that job entailed was traveling to various parts around the U.S. to support math folks. I was kind of hired as their, as their, math, their, their, their math guy because they were having a really difficult time identifying, you know, quality practices and mathematics. So I was the first sort of former math teacher hired in that role. And it was sort of my job to sort of figure out of all these schools that this nonprofit supports, what are some of the, you know, best practices that we can elevate to the whole network of schools. And so that job really afforded me this incredible privilege of traveling to schools and I, and meeting with teachers and observing classrooms and talking to students to figure out sort of what what makes for a you know a good high quality mathematical experience and so I started to sort of synthesize some of that into into sort of a theory of the case so the book sort of arose from that I, I began sort of writing sort of colloquially colloquially on my blog about you know just great lessons I see or great teaching moves that I see or or student voice that suggests a really safe social and emotional environment. And I started to sort of put that together. And then I was approached by by Stenhouse, specifically by Tracy Zager, who has her own book, Becoming the Math Teacher You Wish You Had. And she asked me if I'd consider writing a, a book for them. And so I thought this would be a great opportunity to sort of synthesize what I was seeing and in classrooms across the country. So it's it's sort of an investigation on what makes classrooms successful. 
I saw some classrooms that were successful in, you know, urban environments and in inner city Seattle and New York. And then I saw successful classrooms in, you know, rural Arkansas and, you know, El Paso, a border town that borders the the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas. And um, and I certainly saw classrooms that were less successful, um, classrooms that had plenty of support and technology and access to to resources. And and those some some classrooms were not as successful. So I sort of started to put these pieces of the puzzle together. And then necessary conditions is what sort of came out of that. And it, it sort of proposes a three-legged framework of what makes for a a high quality mathematical experience for students. And we'll we'll dive into each of these, I imagine. But the sort of three pillars are academic safety, quality tasks, and effective facilitation. And those were sort of the, the key like variables that I saw in successful classrooms, that if a classroom had those three components really working well, then that was, you know, more, more likely than not to, to result in positive mathematical experiences for students. So that, that's kind of like the, the big, you know, slapdash and I would say elevator pitch, but that was probably a lot longer than your typical elevator ride. So maybe if it was like the, you know, uh, a really tall tower of an elevator elevator pitch, that's kind of the slapdash version of it. That I loved your presentation, by the way. It really inspired me. And it really goes a lot, uh, well with a lot of things I'm trying to do in my classroom and engaging with the, the thinking classroom too. But you, you made one point and I, I wrote it down when I was listening is that you say, I keep my math everywhere. What, what do you, what do you mean by that? So that was a really interesting conversation. So this was a, a result of a conversation I had with a student in Santa Ana, California. And this was a student that I found really, really, really compelling when I was talking to her. She had struggled a lot in, in math throughout middle school. But then when she got to this spe- specific school in high school at Samueli Academy in Santa Ana, California, look it up. it's a great school, beautiful school one of my favorite schools that I've ever been to. Um, she, she talked openly about how much she struggled with math and she, she had, she has certain learning challenges around keeping things organized. And so the phrase she used was, I keep my math everywhere. And she was trying to find some samples of the work she'd been doing in math class that she was proud of, but she was digging through her backpack and just couldn't she just couldn't find it because, you know, because of her challenges with organization and keeping things tidy. For the record, I have a daughter that also has difficulty with that and has the same backpack in terms of, you know, stuff smooshed towards the bottom of it and it's tough to find anything, permission slips, bell schedules, what have you. But then she said this phrase, I keep my math everywhere. And I just, I, I thought that was sort of, sort of such a beautiful and prescient thing for someone to say. Um, I know that she didn't mean it exactly like this, but I found it to be really true that a lot of a lot of us do keep our math everywhere. You talk to adults, they can often recall specific memories and experiences often in math class that is either can either be traumatic or really edifying. But like individuals carry those experiences over you know over time and and i'm sure that happens in all subject areas and in all disciplines but it feels like in mathematics it's particularly acute and you can you can see on people's faces the minute you tell them you're a math teacher whether it's going to be a positive conversation or a negative conversation so that's 
so I, I know that the, the student didn't exactly mean it like that, but that's kind of like that really resonated with me and, and is so true. And that ended up being part of the book, that sort of story about how she, she mentioned that. I love that. And as you know, on this podcast, we tend to focus on thinking classrooms. And we spoke a little bit about this in Saskatoon, but I think the way that a thinking classroom is set up, the math is everywhere all the time, right? In the mm -hmm. walls, it's it's right in your face, which I, I really like about it. Um, what kind of connections do you see between your work with Necessary Conditions and, and the three main points of your book and Peter's work with building thinking classrooms? Do you see any connections between the work? Yeah. So, so first of all, I would just say like, I genuinely can't think of a better like honor to be even mentioned in the same sentence, even to be like be in the same library with Peter's book is like, I mean, just an incredible because that I've gotten so much out of that book and it is so well written. And I've seen teachers employ the building thinking classroom strategies to great success. And I've, I've been a huge fan of, of his work and even his research uh, of Peter's. So just to be like in the same, like, room as that is is an incredible honor so i think the connections are, are are palpable i will say that like to be honest i would say that my book necessary conditions is probably like less helpful than than peter's book it's certainly less prescriptive peter's book building things in classrooms is great because it's like it sets up like if you do x you'll get y or or if you do if you do this this will result in more often than not a better positive experience for, for students. Whereas my book is a little bit more, if you're aware of X, Y, and Z, and by the way, here's some strategies that may or may not work for X, Y, and Z strategy, X1, X2, and, and Y1 and Y2, then that could result in a more positive mathematical experience for students. So it certainly is more sprawly I don't know if that's I don't know if that's a word, but I would say it's definitely more sprawling than um, building thinking classrooms. And it tries to take into account some of the sort of other stuff about students and what they bring to the table. I think one of the things I'm really I'm really proud of about about necessary conditions is that it tries to center a lot of student voice and teacher voice. I tried to step back as often as I could and let sort of the teachers and the students take the reins. And so that and so that does make for, you know, probably a less prescriptive reading experience because there's there's not like one strategy. There's not really a necessary condition strategy in the way that there is a building thinking classroom strategy. I know there's more there's more to it than just one single strategy, but um, like there's not really a necessary conditions approach in the same way because it does take into account a, a lot of things like student background and student affect and student mindset and their sort of previous feelings about math that's, you know, that's maybe not as present in other math books. One of the highlights for me is that card set that goes with that and the rich and robust conversations we had in, in our groups too. And it's definitely something that I, I think we need to spread. So what gave you the idea for the cards and how would you suggest maybe read your book and use it to, to promote like academic safety, effective facilitation, and quality tasks. So can you maybe explain a little bit about how you get, how somebody could get the most out of your work? Sure. Yeah. So one of my, you know, my biggest self-criticisms, kind of like I was saying, they're really like Peter, like Peter's book, again, just, just to contrast them, which again, I, I think Peter's book is phenomenal and probably the most impactful math book we've seen in a long time. 
um, one of my own self-criticisms is that necessary conditions, like I said, it, it's pretty sprawly. Um, there's a lot of stuff and it, and it can be difficult for teachers, especially new teachers, teachers that are in, in their methods courses now to sort of sift through one of the sort of meta theories from necessary conditions sort of undergirding it is that there isn't one way to teach math that's correct necessarily. There isn't like a, like this approach is good. This other approach is bad. I've, like I said, I've seen classrooms be successful using a more inquiry-based approach. I've seen classes be successful with a more like Socratic discourse kind of approach. So I developed this card set that sort of goes in tandem with the book. So rather than having to read through hundreds of pages, one might be able to sort of sift through and find maybe one or two practices that they find really compelling. And maybe it's about quality tasks. Maybe it's about academic safety. Maybe it's about effective facilitation. Maybe it's about assessment, which maybe we'll talk about in a minute. So maybe just what's one or two things you could do. And maybe these are, are big things like trying to promote more diversity and inclusion in the math classroom. Maybe it's smaller things like learning to, to do things like turn and talk or um, you know think, pair, share, some of those quick strategies. Maybe it's something big like having students recognize you know a, a growth mindset. Or maybe it's something small like using a small number talk routine in your classroom. So regardless of where teachers are coming from, you know, and, and sit, regardless of how far they are through the book, they might be able to identify maybe one or two practices to help, you know, improve their practice the very next day rather than getting overwhelmed by the voluminous concepts around, you know, weighty concepts like academic safety and stereotype threat and project-based learning and norms and things like that. There might be like one or two small things that a teacher could do sort of immediately to improve their, their math class. Yeah. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. I think it's a great way to get teachers started. You know, not all teachers have a lot of time to dive into, mm -hmm. especially mid-year. Um, if we're lucky, we get some time on the summer, but we also need time to step back and relax. But I think it's a very accessible way. And hey, oh, I saw this card. This is really interesting. I want to learn more. Now I know where I go in the book. And I think it's a great way to engage teachers in a, maybe a more practical way for their day. Mm -hmm. um, one, one thing I've heard you mention a few times now, and I wanted to talk about it today, was this idea of a growth mindset in math. And how do we address some of those student misconceptions about what math even is, and how do they see themselves maybe in a more positive light in the math classroom? Yeah, so I'm going to sort of zoom back out to sort of the three concepts, mm -hmm. the three pillars. So the, th the three sort of pillars in the book are academic safety, which, which sort of in incorporates some you know, aspects of growth mindset, and then quality tasks and effective facilitation. And the reason I, I, I'm zooming out really briefly is because I want to acknowledge that growth mindset does not exist in a vacuum. I know that sometimes we'll see advocacy where it's just a matter of using the right language or, or putting a poster on the board or something like that. Or, you know, there, there's a famous growth mindset poster that shows the difference between growth mindset and fixed mindset. We've all seen that one word like growth mindset goes through, fixed mindset goes around the problems. And that's all that's all true and that's all good. However, it's, it's, it was very difficult for me to divorce those concepts from the types of tasks that students are given and the type of facilitation that a teacher gives. So for example, it's a teacher can say, have a growth mindset all you want, but if you're not giving tasks that adhere to that, 
then students will will not be able to receive that message or or embody a growth mindset. So like if a teacher gives, you know, says have a growth mindset, but only gives, you know, math problems that are very low level, rote, you know, very procedural, procedural, and they don't actually stretch student thinking, then then a student might, you know, I, a student would just sort of bypass the idea of a growth mindset altogether. And sort of similarly on the flip side, I've seen classrooms where teachers try to give really challenging quality mathematical tasks, but it's not facilitated in, in a way that helps students feel success. So like, for example, a lot of these classrooms I was in would try to employ inquiry methods without providing any kind of structure or support for students. And so what would happen then is teachers would say, okay, we're going to do this really amazing task. And maybe it's a three-act task. Maybe they, they're totally on the, on the up and up as far as problem-based learning or project-based learning or three-act math or whatever. And then they would say, all right, let's, let's, let's go now. Let's like, here's the task, go. And the classroom would kind of get sort of aimlessly chaotic or students would just have difficulty self-starting because they don't know sort of what's the first step I need to take to solve this inquiry task. And so in, that's another case in which, you know, you, you want to cultivate and have a growth mindset and promote that to students, but you also need those other aspects of, of, of those pillars in order to sort of enact that. That's fantastic. Can you give us a couple of examples maybe of quality tasks that we could use in? Because I know that sure. thinking classroom, I'm trying to do tasks all the time and thinking of sure. new ideas. So I think that would be a nice segue. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, to focus in on quality tasks for a minute, um, I provide in the book a couple things. One is sort of a quality task scoring guide. So like, is this a quality task or not? And there's like a, a, a little mini rubric and it asks some questions about, you know, are all students able to access the task? Does it make connections between mathematical concepts? And those, those are some sort of indicators of a, of a high quality mathematical task. And then I also give sort of 10 essential task types in, in the book. So these are sort of 10 types of tasks that a teacher could use to, you know, to employ in their classroom. And, and as I said, some of them are kind of, you know, small, straightforward things like number talks, number talks or pattern talks or something that not all, but many teachers are aware of. And these are things that, that a teacher could employ the very next day. Or another example might be, you know, a lot of us have seen which one doesn't belong tasks where you provide sort of four things and you ask students which one doesn't belong and why. And more often than not, students are able to identify why you know, some sort of rule or indicator why each of those things won't belong. Those are, those are examples of high quality tasks that take five minutes, maybe 10, and don't take that long of a time to prepare. In fact, you can go to, you know, a lot of our favorite websites and find some wodb.ca. You can find a whole bevy of which one doesn't belong tasks. There's also tasks that are a little bit more meaty. So for example, project-based learning tasks. I used project-based learning in my class a lot in which students were sort of thrust into a sort of real world scenario and students had to use mathematics and do research and, and, and develop new learnings in order to achieve that, um, the outcome that the project sets forth for them. I guess, I guess to give like a straightforward example, 
so I, again, I was a teacher in Texas and we, I was teaching algebra two and this was a class or this was a unit on exponential growth and decay. And so I tried to think, what are some applications to exponential growth and decay that I could use in my class? And there was sort of a natural alignment with things around animal populations, animal population decay and growth. And so what I had my students do was I had, there's a, a magazine in Texas called Texas Wildlife, Texas Parks and Wildlife Magazine. And currently at the time, there was a there was a decline of a certain population of bighorn sheep, and then then restoration efforts were put in place. This is all real world, real life happening. Population restoration efforts, like so, hunting restrictions, catch and release programs, were being employed in West Texas, and we were seeing the population go up again. And so, what I had my students do was write an article for Texas Parks and Wildlife magazine analyzing the population decline and then the growth of the Texas desert bighorn sheep. And they applied the, the math around exponential growth and decay, or more you know accurately, decay and growth. They sort of used the concepts around exponential growth and decay to analyze the population, the actual population of Texas desert bighorn sheep, and to make predictions about where their, the population would go in the future. And so that's an example of, of a sort of meteor task that took weeks. That didn't take five minutes, but, you know, just as quality of a task, I would say, as some of your smaller number talk routines, you know, both very potentially powerful mathematical experiences, given the right supports for students to, and to engage in those activities. What a great connections to the real world. Yeah, it reminds me of the task you walked us through when we were at the conference too. With uh, I think it was which animal is the best mm -hmm. jumping, the jumping, yeah. mm -hmm. and the debate and discourse that we had, and then we used different data to justify our arguments. Like it was, it was very meaningful and relevant. The, even the you know 50, 60 teachers that we had in the room at the time. So it was a good way to to prove that. And I and I know we had teachers go back and do that with their students that next weekend. Oh, that's great. It was really interesting yeah, to hear how that developed. That's a really fun, and I, and I would say one of the, I like it. I, I don't know that I'll ever have the opportunity opportunity to write a second edition, but I don't even know what to call that type of task. But it, it's almost it's almost like a debate task. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you've read or seen Chris's book about debate math, but it's a great one from Stenhouse. But um, yeah, so that task I sort of gave folks a bunch of different animals to choose from and said, who's the best jumper? And, you know, leaving the, the, the word best as op very open to interpretation. And so like, which, what is a frog, a better jumper than a, than a cougar or a domestic cat or a jackrabbit. And then based on some data, you know, s individuals can either bolster or retreat from their initial description of who, who the best is. That would be the kind of task that I, you know. 10 is a nice number, but if I could include an, an 11th or a 12th, yeah. I would have, in my second edition, that will probably never happen. That would certainly be one. And that, and maybe that just like, just to get really meta, that sort of shows how quickly there's new stuff coming out in math all the time. I mean, Necessary Conditions was published, I mean, I guess five years ago at this point. And even since then, we've seen a lot of new stuff and new development come across, you know, come across the bow. Yeah. And I like that task and I see it fitting really well into like a thinking classroom. You could mm -hmm. give it the way Peter 
prescribes, you could work on vertical whiteboards and groups and, you know, really, really get into some really deep thinking, which I really like. Um, mm -hmm. And part of that would allow for students to really work on communication and discussions and mm -hmm. talking, which is something we don't see in a, what we dub a traditional math class as much as we'd like. So can you just speak to why communicating and having those discussions are so, so beneficial for our students in math class? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but I think I'd like to focus on on Elena Horn's work and research. She's a scholar at um, in Tennessee who wrote Strength in Numbers, and she has done some really interesting research and scholarship and writing around academic status. And academic status is the notion that within a classroom, there are like students either have this perception of them be self-perceiving as a math person or, or unfortunately not a math person. Mm -hmm. But the really interesting thing, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things about that research. What's, what's really fascinating to me is that students' academic success is partially based on how they perceive others perceiving them. So I don't know if there's a lot of directionality there, but so basically do my, do I think that my peers think I'm good at math? Like, do, do I feel like I am part of this classroom? Do I feel like I am, you know, do I have status in the classroom as a mathematician? So students' perception of how they are perceived can affect their mathematical achievement in math, which I find really fascinating. And so, so your question is around discussion to think back to the the task we were just we were talking about the sort of who's the best jumper one of the things i like about that task is that there's no barrier of entry and so every student whether it could be their first day in class and maybe they just transferred from another school they can have an opinion and some like a skin in the game with regards to who they think the best jumper is and they have some you know, reasoning or intuition behind it. And so whether they have been a traditionally high achiever in math or whether or whether they have negative self-perceptions of themselves in math, they can engage in that task in a way that's just as authentic and just as meaningful as someone who, you know, I'd spent their whole life getting, you know, A's in math class. And so the ability to sort of discuss and to communicate help sort of flatten the academic playing field so that it's not just one or two students that are, you know, engaging and, and discoursing or answering the teacher's questions. Every student in the room, again, starting from sort of the level playing field of, of, of intuition can, can, can engage in that task in a way that sort of is elevating for them. Um, you know, when I think of your work, the word that comes to mind is academic safety. And we talked to a recent guest on our show, Dr. Gail Russell here in Regina. She spoke a little bit about it. She 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 would prefer to rename it mathematical safety. But at the end of the day, we're talking about the same thing. Sure. And I see so many connections between that and the benefits we see in thinking classrooms. Can you just expand a little bit on what academic safety is all about and why yeah. that's something that should be maybe top of mind for teachers as they're thinking about how they're going to approach their math classroom? Yeah, so there's a lot <laughs> to the concept of academic safety for for sure. Um, and it, it's one thing that I think, you know, frankly, I think is missing in a lot of mathematics texts. A lot of texts are really good at focusing on 
you know, lesson planning or individual strategies, but I feel like they miss this piece of the puzzle sometimes. And so just to define it very briefly, it's sort of a, a combination of how students view the discipline of math and how students view themselves as mathematicians, or maybe even better, or to the point, do they view themselves as mathematicians? So a lot of students come into our classroom with, first of all, a negative view of the discipline. So math is, it's boring, it's dry, it's abstract, it's inapplicable, it's not creative. And so that's, you know, that, that's an issue right there. And the other half of it is related, but it's, do they view themselves as mathematicians? And, you know, if, if students come, a lot of students come into our classrooms and then sometimes depart our classrooms feeling like they're not mathematicians, maybe because their skill sets they feel are not aligned with what they think of the discipline of math. Maybe they are, you know, a creatively inclined person. And so they're not given creative mathematical tasks. And so they think that they don't belong in the discipline of math. So, so it's kind of those two aspects. And there's a lot more to it as well with regards to sort of the academic identity that students have. There's, there's famous research around there's the draw a scientist or draw a mathematician test that's very famous. And more often than not, what what adults and students will do is draw a picture of a, an old white guy. So if if a student is in a classroom, if, if you're teaching a class with, you know, a lot of students with diverse identities, are they seeing themselves in the discipline of math? Or are you just presenting the same sort of old white guy mathematicians to them or are there are you including the stories of non-white non-male identifying mathematicians to you know to help students see themselves as as a part of the discipline so again so that's a, a very a, a very sort of slapdash encapsulation of what is a very hefty topic yeah. and even to, to think back to the cards that there i've certainly seen teachers that struggle with this in a way that can be a little bit paralyzing because some teachers are acutely aware that when they when a kid walks into their class in 10th grade they've had nine grades or maybe even 10 grades of sort of sediment built up and it's not it's not about just providing a couple great mathematical experiences they have to sort of dig through a lot of that sediment and a lot of that you know calcium that's built up over time uh, to get through to students' mathematical identity or academic identity. And I think I think teachers might struggle with that too, right? Mm -hmm. They come up through a system of mathematics and curriculum and everything that has right. reinforced those ideas and teachers who maybe didn't have the best experience with math are feeling the same things that maybe we're worried our students are feeling. Um, yeah. Do you have any, you know, maybe quick tips or places to start for a teacher who wants to tackle this? but maybe isn't as comfortable in teaching math? Sure. So I'll sort of give away the, the three strategies I presented at, at, at our conference. Sort of the three things I recommend, and this is, again, only a starting place. I, I mean, it's probably more important that, you un, that teachers understand more so, that, more so than enact. Mm -hmm. it, it's more important for teachers to sort of understand the students' individuals that are coming into their classroom more so than enacting certain strategies. That said, Here's a few strategies. So the, the first thing I recommend to, to help for teachers to help sort of reconceptualize the discipline of math is to, first of all, do creative math. 
So find opportunities within their curriculum, within their scope and sequence to find math that is creative. Maybe it's using incorporating art or artistic artifacts in their class. Um, it could be you know, designing or recognizing patterns, beautiful patterns. It could be finding multiple solutions to a single, a symbol, a, a single task. The second strategy I recommend is to do useful math. So like I said, I, I provided the example of the, the population decline and growth. So what, what is math that students can use that they find interesting and applicable to things they, they can do? Hard to do with all, all you know, subject areas, to be sure. There are some mathematical concepts that are easier to make useful than others. But as much as you can, try to find opportunities to, to bring in useful math to the classroom. Then the final strategy that I recommend to teachers is to do math with students, not just at students. So a lot of students come through a system, a lot of us went through a system, where math is kind of done at, at you where the teacher is sort of throwing math and mathematical facts at you and, and, and you have to sort of scribble and copy them and, and sort of try to replicate that as best as you can. So try to find opportunities where, where, teacher, where you can do math with students. So maybe that's playing mathematical games with students where you're both, you're both sort of, again, sort of on an equal playing field where you're sort of playing with students. Maybe it's you know, expressing curiosity and wonder about a student's mathematical idea of if they develop a, an alternate way to solve a problem, like that's to be celebrated, that's to be elevated. Um, so try to find opportunities for that. So creative math, useful math, and then doing math with students rather than just at students are sort of the three, you know, those are big strategies, but, you know, quick strategies, I guess. So I kind of have two follow-up questions with that. And you, you touched on it a little bit before, and I know you do a nice job. And, and assessment has to kind of, you know, intertwine all three pillars. So how would you do that? And then the other part of my question would be then, how do you also then convince other stakeholders, such as other teachers or parents, mm -hmm. that you're actually doing math? Because there's a lot of people that yeah. think math in a certain way. Yeah. I, I, uh, let me tackle that second question first, because then, then I'll... I'll get into assessment because as y'all know, I, I, I can get on a soapbox sometimes with assessment. Um, so yeah, so just to acknowledge that that it's it's really difficult when when parents are, it's really fascinating because sometimes you'll hear from parents how much they sort of despise new ways of teaching math, but that'll come on the heels of them talking about how much they hate math. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's like, God, I hate math. I hated it in school, but also why are you teaching a student in, in a different way than I was taught? Because I don't understand it. So I, I really like what I've seen from folks that have used their sort of parent night or back to school night as a way to do math with parents and to really make it like a family activity. So rather than going through your syllabus, like this is how I'm grading your kid. This is, you know, what's expected of them. But to actually do like a, a quick math routine with them. Maybe to do a which one doesn't belong. Maybe to do a, a number talk to sort of show how you know how you can you know how you can solve a, a arithmetic problem in multiple different ways. Um, it's a small thing, you know, of, of what is a much bigger you know challenge. Certainly, keeping the lines of communication with parents is crucial. So, 
my, my guess is a lot of parents don't even realize that they're imbuing their kids with negative mathematical, I don't know, thoughts, I guess. They're sort of priming them to not like the discipline. And I don't think that's intentional generally, but to just help parents sort of be aware of that sort of language. And if, if, if they are, if they don't know how to help their, their child with a certain you know, task or something like that, to you know, try to keep those lines of communication to come to you first. But then to like, so then to like think about your first question around assessment. Assessment is, has sort of become a sort of passion project, which is surprising because I had no no appetite for it. One of the things I've noticed is that it, it's one of those things that encompass all three aspects. So the way we assess students, how we assess students, and the types of tasks we assess students with are all naturally rolled into this, these concepts of academic safety, facilitation, and quality tasks. Most assessments that students experience are in the form of tests or quizzes in which the, they are individualized. They are typically, not always, but they're typically sort of the, the lowest rung of the level of complexity. So it's mostly just like recall. Can you sort of replicate this this concept that we learned about a couple of weeks ago. Hopefully you didn't forget it. And then the way students are sort of given a grade, sort of a numerical grade can, can also impact their sense of academic safety and their own sense of whether they belong in math class. If a student, you know, receives the same sort of negative grades multiple times in a row, that is going to impact their view of themselves as a mathematician. And on, and on the flip side, if, if students are used to achieving and getting A's and A's only, that also is going to sort of inform their sense of academic identity. And so assessment is this really interesting sort of confluence of, of all three of these, of, these, of these concepts. And so my, and in fact, my dissertation research is, you know, in a way around, around assessment and how can we provide assessments for students that use high quality tasks that are facilitated in a way that adheres to, you know, good pedagogy. And then finally offer students an opportunity to recognize their own growth as mathematicians rather than, you know, sort of as this sort of fixed sort of number in math class. So that's kind of what my, you know, my, my sort of passion project has been over the past, I don't know, seven or eight years or so. I really like that. And that's a recognition that assessment isn't just this event that happens, you know, every other week or whatever. It's something that's embedded and connected with everything that we do in our classroom. Mm -hmm. Whether so being, you know, purposeful with it, I think is a good step in the right direction. I would love to talk more assessment with you, but we're near to the end of our time. <laughs> so maybe we'll have to connect with you for another episode. I'm hoping to do a little series on just assessment and that would be sure. a really good conversation and give us some time to, to do that. But, you know, before we part ways for the day here, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Anything maybe that we missed or any ideas for teachers who are maybe dabbling in thinking classrooms, but also interested yeah. in your work to explore? Yeah. So I write about math and math education kind of colloquially at emergentmath.com. And there you can find, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about some of these concepts, but there's also some resources there. So like, for example, last summer, I developed a year's worth of algebra warmups. And so like every summer I try to take, I take on like a new project that I end up just, you know, publishing on my website. I'm still sort of me like wondering what my project is going to be this summer. Uh, but in the past I've, I've offered a syllabus boot camp in which, uh, 
you know, I, I talk about how I develop my syllabus in class. I, uh, the a previous one I talked about, there's like a five part series or six parts on how to develop rubrics. So again, thinking about assessment and assessing kids in constructive ways, how do I develop a rubric that's, that's in there as well. But then I'll also just blog regularly as well. And I would say that's kind of the best place to sort of, you know, stay in touch, see if you're interested in, in following up on, on some of these, these concepts that we've talked about today. That. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes and everything so anyone can find you or track you down if they want to have some more questions. We appreciate your time, Jeff. And I know your your work is going to continue to push our work here. And we, we're really appreciative of that. So thank you for your time and thanks for sharing. And we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Think Thank Thunk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss a new episode. And as always, keep thinking, keep thinking, and keep thunking.